Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, those watching online are welcome at any time to send questions or comments, simply emailing us at speaker at heritage.org. And we will, of course, post today's program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Leading our discussion and welcoming our special guest is Emily Gao. She is director of our Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. She is an attorney who has defended religious freedom for the last 14 years. She has worked on behalf of victims of religious freedom violations in East Asia, the Middle East, Europe and South Asia at the State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom. She also worked at Beckett Law. Previously, she was at the United Nations, as well as the firm of Latham and Watkins. Please join me in welcoming Emily Gao. Emily? Thank you very much, John, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us for today's discussion about how faith, foster care, and adoption go together. For more than 100 years... Faith has been a force multiplier in our child welfare system. It has enabled millions of children to be placed into loving families for the rest of their lives, oftentimes after they have experienced trauma. Faith has motivated these families to open their homes to these children and to call them their own. But now, several cities and states are making faith a barrier to the ability of faith-based agencies to serve children. California, Massachusetts, Illinois, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. have barred agencies from serving simply because they believe that every child deserves both a mother and a father. At a time when our country has close to 440,000 children in foster care, 100,000 of whom are waiting to be adopted. We have a shortage of foster families. Over 50, about 50 of, 50 percent of the states in this country have experienced a shortage of foster care families in the last five years. In addition to that, the drug crisis has become the number one driver of children into foster care. 92,000 children were in foster care in 2016 because of their parents' drug abuse. When Philadelphia put out a call for 300 additional foster families, they then 
suspended two agencies, Catholic Charities and Bethany Christian Services, from continuing to serve because of their religious beliefs. Now, Congress has introduced the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act, H.R. 1881 and S.811, introduced by Senator Mike Enzi and Representative Mike Kelly. This legislation would restore government to a neutral position with regards to religion, where they would not be able to discriminate against any agency because of their religious beliefs. Governor Bevan has led the state of Kentucky in recruiting foster families from churches and nonprofit groups through his initiative, Open Hearts, Open Homes. In five years, from 2012 to 2017, Kentucky increased the number of beds for foster children in the state by 46%, according to the Chronicles of Social Change, which Natalie Goodnow recently referenced in her heritage paper, The Role of Faith-Based Aid in Child Welfare, which is available outside and online at the Heritage website. In addition to his role as an advocate for vulnerable children, Governor Bevan and his wife, First Lady Glenna, are parents to nine children, four of whom were brought into their family through adoption. In addition to his initiative, he has personalized the issue of adoption and foster care in the state by prioritizing the voices of foster children themselves, bringing them to the table and asking them what their concerns are and making that into legislation. He has also added $24 million to the state's budget for child welfare, increasing the salaries of social workers so that they can work better and more efficiently to place children in foster families. And finally, he has called upon the 6,500 houses of worship in his state to step up and step in to the lives of these children. After Governor Bevan gives the keynote address this morning, we will have some time for a question and answer. Then the governor will leave for his next engagement. We ask that you please stay seated as he exits the room and as our panelists come to the stage and respond to the governor's address and share their own ideas about how faith, foster care, and adoption can go together. We encourage you, if you are tweeting today, to please use the hashtag KeepKidsFirst. And now, would you please join me in welcoming Governor Bevan. Thank you all for being here. Uh, some of you are interns. You're like a captive audience. So you're kind of uh, here. Some of you for whom this is a very personal issue. Uh, others of whom perhaps you're curious about it. Some of you do this for a living. Uh, and some of you perhaps uh, feel inclined uh, to do the same. I met a young woman in Virginia who is in the communications area upstairs uh, who for 11 years, she said, didn't come as a result of this being a part of her family. Just for 11 years, she's just had a real calling in her life to sort of uh, look into what can be done with foster care and adoption specifically. Uh, and to me, that's just encouraging. It's encouraging to see uh, so many young people here, including faces that I know from various places, uh, including even members of my own family. I won't single her out, but one of my nieces is in this room, and I uh, appreciate that as well. 
Uh, I, I'll just tell you a little bit about my story and kind of what drew me to this, why this is something that I care about. I don't have a keynote address in that I'm not going to uncork a big speech on you. Uh, I've often found when I've sat in, in your shoes, uh, sometimes what makes these things the most memorable or enjoyable or informative is that when you all get to talk about what you all want to talk about. So I'll speak for a few moments and then would welcome you all to, to be prepared to ask for questions because I'd love to use most of our time uh, to ask some Q&A uh, and, and for me to be able to address things specifically related to this ideally, but other things that perhaps are connected in some peripheral way uh, that you think would be of interest to you. I'll just tell you uh, a couple things about myself and my background. This is Some of this is perhaps something you're aware of. This is the first political job that I've ever had. So uh, I've never previously been in government. Uh, I was informed by a couple of things, interestingly. There were two specific events that happened uh, over time that were the primary drivers but behind why I decided to get engaged. And one of them was this exact topic. Met a young girl many years ago, more than 10 years ago. I was at a playground with my kids, and they were playing, and they were playing with other kids, and kids were playing on merry-go-rounds and, and – uh, or whatever you call that little spinny thing that has now been largely removed because apparently it's dangerous. But the uh, but it was fun. Uh, there was one of those. There were some swings and things of this sort. And we had a small dog. And I noticed this one little girl was playing with my girls, and they were playing with a dog, and, and they were all having a good time together. And so I started talking to this little girl, and I asked her, you know, what um, – at the time, again, this was 10-plus years ago. I'd never been involved in anything politically at all. And I asked this little girl if she was there with her parents, and she said no. And, and then long story short, I figured out she was there. Actually, she was at a children's home. She was in an adoption. Uh, it wasn't an adoption place. It was just a, it was a children's home. Uh, and she was in the foster care system and had been there uh, her entire life. She had been in, I think, 14 different homes. She was 11, 11 years old. And to make a long story short, we thought maybe we should think about possibly adopting this little girl. The process was so ridiculously convoluted, so complex, so difficult, so time-consuming, and so costly, even though it was an in-state and supposedly cost-free, the numbers of fingerprintings, the numbers of inspections in the home, the number of interviews of our kids separate from us, the number of classes we had to take learning how to be parents, even though we had five children at the time, one of which, interestingly, and they always had to be taken together. My, my wife and I had to go together to take each one of these classes. They had to be scheduled when they said they were available, not when it was even remotely convenient to us. And so it invariably came at the expense of work or what have you, which is fine and understandable to a degree. <clears throat> but I remember one of the classes <clears throat> was being taught by somebody who didn't even have children and was teaching my wife and I how to be good parents. And I just thought, this is just absurd. <clears throat> and this went on for over a year. And we did everything right, and we again we did we did everything, paid everything, did everything, thousands and thousands of dollars for all these inspections and all of this stuff, and all to ultimately be told after more than a year that you know what you already have five children, that's enough. This is someone at the state. We think it's better for this child to stay in the system than to be the sixth child in a family because she wouldn't get enough attention. Now, can you imagine? It still just breaks my heart because this young girl would be the age of some of you in this room. She's a young adult somewhere, 20-something years old. And the statistical chance that her life has turned out well is small. 
Quite the opposite is probably likely. This was one of the things that I remember at the time saying, somebody should do something about this. I had never run for anything. I'd been the president of my 4-H club as a kid, but other than that, I, don't, I don't remember if I ran for it or if I just drew the short straw. I don't know. But, but I just remember thinking the role of government should be to prevent these kind of things from happening. There was a second thing that had to do with pensions that I just saw our pension system was the worst in America and was falling into the toilet and, and nobody was doing anything about it. And I happened to work in the investment business. And those were the two catalysts for why I ran. The topic here is what role does faith have or what does it not have as it relates to this topic? And I would agree, you know, very much with the premise that was laid out in the introduction is that it is very much a part of a constructive upbringing. It was funny, as I was sitting here, I was, I have, you know, I, I bring this up, it makes it look like I know what I'm talking about. You come up with a folder, but, but actually in here, I have tucked in here, all these cards I got from my kids for Father's Day. And and I'll tell you, you know, varying degrees of, of artistic ability. Um, but the but look at all these. I mean, the great thing about having lots of kids is you get lots of cards. This is what every kid wants. Every kid wants a father and a mother. It's the, the idea that we need to protect our children from from that is absurd. This idea that we need to be worried about certain organizations uh, making that as an option for kids uh, exclusive of some other option, and that's somehow detrimental. Any study that's been done, and Heritage, among others, have looked at this, <clears throat> you will never find any study that has ever been done by anyone that shows anything other than what I'm about to say, and that is that the absolute best chance for any child We'll speak specifically to America, but it's true anywhere in the world, is to be raised in a home with a mother and father who are together the entire time of that child's upbringing. Every statistic that has ever been done, every study, every analysis that has ever been done affirms that same thinking. Every one of them. Not one has ever shown the opposite. That a child who does not grow up in a mother and father home has a harder time in life. That's just the sad reality of it. They're more likely to get involved in criminal activity. They're more likely to not finish school. They're more likely to have behavioral problems. They're more likely to become addicted. They're more likely to become pregnant before they're married. These are the kind of things that are systemic now in entire subsections of our culture and increasingly across the entire country. And what we have found time and time again is these things are the, the cause of many of them is to be coming up in homes that are just not functional. It isn't to say that a single, that a mother and a father in a home makes for a perfect home. My goodness, you could find millions of examples of where that's not the case. I'm not trying in any way, shape, or form to pretend that there's something magic about that, that just perfect kids come out of such situations. Of course they don't. But we also know that statistically, and statistics do matter because they're facts, Statistically, a child who grows up in that environment has a much better likelihood of turning out as we in society would want them to turn out. And that may seem like a presumptuous statement because, well, who are you to say how people should turn out? I mean, how about if we just talk about broadly like we don't want people stealing from us if they live next door to us? How about something like that? We want people being engaged in the workforce. We want people becoming what, what Thomas Jefferson 
talked about when he said about creating virtuous citizens. That's the purpose of government to get involved in education and involvement with people's lives is to create virtuous citizens. Not goody goodies, not a bunch of people who are, you know, holier than the next person, but people who are constructive fabric of the community that they're a part of, that they're integrated that they're producing and competitive in their own respects and contributing to the societal success of the whole. That's what a virtuous citizen does. So these are the kind of things that inform my thinking. This is the kind of, it's not rocket science. I'm not the person who invented all this. I didn't think it up. I've always had a heart for young people, in particular children, orphans. I don't know why from the time I was a kid. I always read books about orphans. The first time I ever remember somebody asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I said I wanted to own an orphanage. Seriously, I didn't know you couldn't own orphanages. or, But, you know, I mean, to me, that was I was going to own orphans. I was going to take in orphans. I was going to take care of them. And there were all these stories that sort of informed my thinking. I don't know why I was that way. I was. But there's about 167 million orphans in the world. That number, no one knows exactly how many it is, and depending on which organization. But it's 150 to 200 million, somewhere in there. All these children just need and want a home, a stable, loving home. Historically, as I said earlier, who did provide for this? Who does in many parts of the world, even now, where there is no governmental programs? It's the faith-based community. Always has been. And don't kid yourselves. I don't want to spin way off and turn this into something it's maybe not intended to be. But many of these groups that are trying to box out faith-based organizations being part of the solution, it's not any faith-based organization. It's Judeo-Christian organizations. Don't kid yourself. That's what it is. That's who they're offended by. That's who sensibilities, uh, you know, are just too much for them to be able to handle. But you look at the Judeo-Christian faith and you look at the tenets of the Judeo-Christian religion back to the very beginning. From the very beginning, it was about taking care of widows and orphans and those who did not have what others had was a community. It was family and then community and houses of worship stepping up and being engaged. That's what the intent was. That's really, to me, it's logical enough. Why would we not aspire for these things? Why would we not encourage these things? So my wife, it's a passion of hers as well. Again, any woman who's willing to be the mother of, of 10 children, in her case, because she's got me, but there's, you know, I've got nine, she's got all of us. Uh, but I mean, somebody like that, she has a passion and a heart for this. And so many of these initiatives that we're talking about are things that she is very, very passionate about. You see, this is our family here. I guess I just noticed it's in the back of the room, and I realize you must be looking at it as well. This is our crew. You know, not perfect. We look, trust me, we look a lot more perfect than, than we really are in that picture. Uh, but, a, but a normal family. It's a little slice of America right here. And there's lots of hormones, as you can imagine. There's six teenage daughters in my house right now, so there's lots of attitude. You know, but it's all good. It's all good. And I wouldn't trade it. I really wouldn't. You know, these are the kind of things that we want for children in Kentucky. And frankly, it's my passion to see this fixed in America. So among the things that was noted that we've done is we did set up a couple of things, open hearts, open homes, where we're proactively reaching out to the faith-based community and saying, listen, step up and step in, as was noted. That's literally what we're asking you to do, to, to be involved, be a part of the solution. Doesn't, there's no perfect answer. There just isn't. Let's figure it out as we go. We have all these things pulling in the other direction. This opioid crisis has been brutal. Thousands and thousands of children being taken from parents that are addicted to drugs and that are trying to find homes for these children. We have more than 2,400 children in Kentucky right now eligible to be adopted. 
And it takes them almost three years from the time they're eligible to the time that the bureaucracy allows them to come out the other end. And you'd think that, hey, once you get to be governor, you get to just fix that. My goodness, how entrenched it is, how it's reinforced at the federal level by laws and rules, and how often I'm told by people internally, well, we can't do that because that would compromise this federal funding stream, or we have to fill out this form first, or we have to, my gracious, we've totally taken our eye off the ball. What is the point of all this? The point of this is to take care of children. That's the point of it. Everything else should be secondary to that. And so I think it's our responsibility. And for you young people, again, I appreciate you being here. Some of you not as young, but I'll tell you, I appreciate your passion. Thank you for for caring about this. We have this obligation to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, to, to look out for those who can't look out for themselves, who are vulnerable. Not just children, it's throughout society, but we're speaking specifically about children in the foster care system and eligible for adoption. These are the things that matter to me. My wife, you know, put together a group of kids who are foster kids and they're on a youth advisory council that she chairs. And and this is her passion. Again, she doesn't have a lot of time. She doesn't, she's a very under the radar screen person. Most of you will never meet her and that will be uh, by choice on her part. And it's not that she doesn't love the idea of meeting good people. She just is a quiet person and she's busy, but she has a heart for this. But one of the things she does do with the time she devotes is this youth advisory council. And some of the things that have come out of that is that foster youth in Kentucky didn't used to be able to get driver's licenses because so many of them had to get the permission by law of their biological parent who may or may not even be around or may or may not be inclined to give a rip about their kid. And so kids were precluded from getting jobs and having normal lives and doing the kind of things because they didn't have any ability to get transportation. They couldn't get a driver's license. That's crazy. So we passed laws to change things like that. Fictive kin is a term that is familiar to some of you, but basically we passed laws that allow somebody who's not a blood relative, which used to be the only uh, stipulation that was allowed, somebody who might be a coach or a neighbor or somebody from church or a trusted friend, to be able to, for a duration of time, up to a year, step in and essentially take responsibility for a child without any formal legal, you know, uh, you know, or financial obligations, but just to step in and be part of a solution. A fictive kin law. These are two things that I would encourage any state that you're involved with or have any influence in. If you check and see, can your foster youth get driver's licenses at the age of 16? Is there, or, are there, or, or are there barriers? Is there a fictive kin law or something of that sort? These are the kind of things I would encourage. They're simple steps, but it's a powerful argument to be able to tell a young person that your voice matters. It's the same thing we're telling so many of you. A number of you are doing internships here and at other organizations in town. Your voice does matter. You're the next generation. I'll say one final thing here. Again, let's say a couple more things real quickly. I want to talk about a ruling um that was just come came down recently, just a couple of weeks ago, a federal ruling. There was a case where we had to sue to get our rights back from the state, uh, for the state. The governor that preceded me, bef- between the time I was elected and the time I was sworn in, there was a few weeks, and he struck a secret deal where he gave the rights of the state to the ACLU and an organization called Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which, you know... <laughs> I'll I'll save my thoughts on that in its entirety. But anyhow, that organization and the ACLU were given the right to come in and monitor what type of religious activities or exposure children uh, in certain uh, foster homes and and adoption uh, homes were being exposed to in Kentucky. 
And the state gave that right. The ACLU now had control to monitor this and to keep tracks on tra- track on this. And, and frankly, was very overt in their desire to subjugate that and suppress it and eliminate it. Any exposure that somehow children be ex- exposed to morality in higher authority in a sense of structure and any spiritual development is somehow bad for them. When in fact, as we noted earlier, and every study has ever shown from the beginning of time, the opposite has been true. And so we had to then, that was a little gift that was left for me by my predecessor. So I had to sue in order to get our rights back again, because actually they sued when we basically said we're going to undo that. So they sued and said, no, you can't. And it turns out we can't. So a federal judge fortunately upheld that. But these are the kind of things that are happening. It isn't just happening in the states and in the cities that were noted. It isn't just happening with a couple of organizations whose names were noted. This is a very systemic and intentional uh, operation that is being done, where people just want to scrub out any exposure to Judeo-Christian thinking and to religion in general as well. The ironic thing is that all of this is done in the idea under the the, the guise of 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 being uh, open-minded and being diverse. But the irony is is that as long as your idea of diversity and open-mindedness doesn't deviate from those who have this agenda, then they're fine with you. It's just very ironic and a little hypocritical, frankly. So I would encourage us to be on guard against this and to stand firm. We know that these are part of the solution. Again, when we have 6,500 different churches in Kentucky and I have 2,450 kids that are looking for a home, If I can't find one home in every two and a half churches, clearly these stated missions of these organizations are not being taken very seriously. This is a simple problem. If we can get government out of the way, the reason I wear this little button, it's a pair of scissors cutting through red tape. I wear it all the time. I would encourage you all to feel free to steal it and take it everywhere you go and everything you touch. There's too much government, too much involvement, too many rules. Isn't to say there's no purpose. There is a good purpose for government, a constructive purpose. We don't need as many rules and as much bureaucracy as we have. Let me stop there. There's a couple other things I might say, but let me ask you what questions some of you have, because I think these are the kind of things uh, that will help to drive the rest of this conversation, and I'll probably come around to some of the other things I want to say as well. Can I start off with a question for you, Kevin? Sure. Um, could you please share with us one of your favorite stories about how faith has impacted some of these adoption stories? I don't. I, let, let, let me say this: this is this is actually not related to an adoption story, but it does relate to foster care and a child who was a teenager and had always hoped to be adopted and never was. I was speaking to this young man. He was he was actually uh, eighteen or nineteen years old just recently had left the adoption, uh, the foster care system. And I met him. He's somebody who was in school and was trying to make a go of his life. But he, I was, I, in my conversation with him, he talked about the, all the various foster homes that he'd been in. And the ones that gave him, and there was one in particular that he was talking about, that had given him the greatest sense of belonging, was one where actually going to church was a part of that family's regular life. In the going to church every week, he said, it was the only thing that always seemed normal to me. It always seemed stable. It seemed to make sense. My life made no sense. His was a horrific, horrific personal life that had allowed him, led him to ultimately being in the foster care system. But, but his appreciation for the fact that the stability of it 
the the logic of it, the normalcy of it, just seemed innate to him. And so, I, I mean, he comes to mind. He's somebody I met about six months ago when I was speaking uh, in a situation like this, and he came up to me afterwards. And he encouraged me to please have make sure you fight for families who may take kids to church, you know, to, to not be dissuaded from the fact that that's good, that many kids like us, even if we don't know what we need and want, that he said, as I've looked back on my life, it was the only thing that seemed stable and normal. So, I mean, there's, he comes to mind immediately in response to that. There are others as well. We, I mean, think about the foundations of this nation. I mean, what's, what's written over the, the, the doors of the Supreme Court for crying out loud? I mean, all the very things we're trying to scrub out now. The idea is that there is a higher spiritual authority. And this is one thing I would say too, and I think kids understand this. We, we sit on a three-legged stool. We do, every single one of us. In the Western culture, we're so blessed. We have it so good. We can afford to be apathetic about any or given thing at any point in time, and things still go on. But you think about it. Every human being has three primary needs. We have a physical need. We need to eat. We need to exercise. We need to stay fit. We have an intellectual need. You know, we're curious. We're intellectually curious. We want to grow. We want to learn. We want to meet new challenges. But we have a spiritual need. It's easy to forget the third. In a society where we're so blessed, we can afford to balance on a two-legged stool. How many of you, if, if, when I, maybe I was the only kid that ever did this. When I was a kid, I had a bicycle, and I used to try to balance on it as long as I could. And I realized if I had a little stick, I mean, I would use a stick that was about this big around, just a teeny little sapling. And I would, if I just, if I balanced, and if I just started the tip, I could just touch the ground just for a brief second with that little sapling, and it would balance me back up again. And I would try to balance as long as I could. You can do it. It's not easy. It is possible for a little while. What would have happened if I had fallen completely over on that little sapling? Would have completely snapped. Would have been insufficient. What I would submit to you all, and this is why this matters to me in terms of faith-based initiatives as it relates to adoption and foster care, innately as human beings, we're created to sit on a three-legged stool. We are. And we have the intellectual and the physical, but we also have a spiritual need. And we can afford to allow that little leg to, to, to atrophy through neglect or disregard. But ultimately, when stuff happens in life, my wife and I lost our oldest daughter when she was 17 years old in a car accident. I will tell you, when things like that happen to you in life, you fall hard over on a leg that may or may not be there. Because you don't have it, because the physical and the intellectual don't provide any comfort, they don't provide any answers. And that's when you realize that indeed that third leg matters. And if we've allowed it as a society or as an individual or as a family, or as a community, as a state, as a government, as a whatever, to atrophy to the point that it's unable to sustain us when we put our full weight on it, shame on us. Because we will reap a terrible repercussion from that. Because we will find that we don't have the preparation. This is perhaps getting a little more in the weeds than was intended with this. But I'm telling you, this is why these things matter. Because every young people, and some of these kids in the foster care system in particular, have already been through things none of us would ever imagine or wish for on anyone. Horrible, horrible circumstances. These are children who desperately need three firm legs under their stool. And we have an obligation, I think, to give it to them. Thank you very much. Um... We have time for a couple of questions, and the microphone will come to you. Uh, please stand up, state your name, 
your organization. And uh, please make sure you ask a question, not just make a statement. So I'll start with the lady in the back in the purple. Hi, I'm Jennifer Cook. I work here at the Heritage Foundation and fundraising. And I'm just, um, the open hearts, open homes concept interest, intrigued me. So while you've been talking, I'm trying to research it online. Um, and I'm finding a couple of things, but is there a website um, for it or is it just an initiative where you guys are hosting folks? And then in addition to that, can you tell me more about success stories and you know how that's working out, you going into the different churches and, and having these kind of like seminar type conversations, it seems like. Thank you for that question. It's still at its genesis to a degree. And let me kind of make this tight so we can get to some other questions. But this was an initiative that we realized, let's proactively reach out and make clear that we want them to be part of this solution. So we put out in this an initial little video, we put it in one church and we had, we said, listen, if you're interested in being an adoptive parent or being involved even from a faith-based community in the foster care, maybe with the potential to adopt or maybe just a foster, We'd like to, to have you speak in one church on one Sunday. We put one little thing up. There were more than 150 families that came. We weren't ready for it, to be honest with you. We really weren't. So we are now partnering with an organization called Orphan Care Alliance, which is helping us to do a tremendous job of, of training and getting people prepared. So we're sort of doing Open Hearts, Open Home 2.0 right now. Because in the very beginning, what was clear to us is that there was far more desire pent up and willing than we really anticipated there might be. We thought maybe 15, 20 people might be interested. It was so many multiples of that that we realized we need to get a better structure in place. There have been families that have adopted. There are children who've had successful adoptions out of those first initial meetings. So there are children that are in forever families that are permanently part of a family because of those initial conversations. But we are structurally working with partners. This is another thing I would encourage you. The government is not the solution for all this. The government is not. There are so many good organizations. Some of you represent some of these. But I would say, please, if you do represent one, this is not a turf war. We have to keep in mind that the point of this is for children to find permanent families. And so it's important for people to work alongside one another and to importantly recognize that that they are part of the solution maybe by serving one facet of it. That there's no competition among organizations. So we right now are working with outside organizations like, you know, the Casey Family Foundation, uh, Focus on the Family, Orphan Care Alliance, um, among others, you know, Wendy's Wonderful Kids, uh, you know, Harvest uh, of Hope. I mean, these are the kind of things that we're trying to use outside organizations together with our inside. We've had some change in people uh, inside of state government. Uh, it's very entrenched and bureaucratic. We're starting to make changes there, but we are basically rolling it out. I just this morning, as I was coming over here, got an email from the largest church in Kentucky is actually going to be basically rolling out another iteration of this where we are more prepared and ready uh, to do this. So I'm excited. This church alone could fix the entire adoption backlog in Kentucky. Uh, they won't, nor do they need to, but they could quite literally. If just, you know, if one out of 10 families in that church adopted a child, we'd fix the problem. So, uh, thank you. Okay. Um, the gentleman in the orange tie. If I do it really fast, we'll get to yours too. Yeah. Bob Woodson, the Woodson Center. We're pleasing you meeting with Pastor Soros. Yes. Uh, my question is, um, if you're recruiting all of these families and they're met with bureaucratic obstacles to receive children. You have a Republican in the, in, in the governorship, 
Republicans in the administration. What is the difficulty of challenging this bureaucratic gridlock? You know what's interesting is that it really shouldn't be. Uh, it's it's several things. You have something with with state employees that are called they're called merit employees. They're basically tenured. You can't get rid of them. Doesn't matter how bad they are. Some of them are great, but interestingly, so many of the good ones get frustrated and move up and out. And so many that have been around forever move up just by dint of having been around. Now they're supervisors and they're in charge. It's like the toll booth operator. They have the ability to make your life miserable for ten or fifteen seconds, and sometimes they do. You know, think about it. I mean, seriously, now we have easy pass. We don't, we can bypass that. But, but think about this. I mean, sometimes people are in a position where they don't want to be helpful. I think it's important. It's a good question. You'd think we should just be able to clear this up. It's not that simple. It's frustrating to me. It's been compounded by the fact that this opioid crisis has been putting thousands of more children into the system. So even though we have fixed things and even though we are addressing certain problems, the inflow has been so excessive in our state and others. But this is starting to turn. I feel that we've leveled off and back to this first question, getting to this 2.0, where we're starting now to come up with a method where it will change. But some of it is I've got entrenched bureaucracies and ideas where mediocrity and not getting in trouble is the goal, not about placing. I have programs that have frankly done little to nothing to ever place a child anywhere, and yet they consume millions and millions of dollars and over time billions of dollars that have gone into this in our state with no really good constructive effect. But this is going to change. Again, what does it take? What did, what, did, what did Edmund Burke say? What does it take for evil to prevail? For good men to do nothing. For good men and women to sit on our hands and do nothing. If we sit by and don't sound the alarm, if we don't stand up, if we don't speak out, if we don't advocate for these things, if we don't have people who devote their lives and passion and legal expertise to addressing this, then nothing will change. But it can change and it will change. I'm confident in this. In Kentucky, you watch Kentucky. We don't have it right. We're not the poster child by any stretch. But it is my goal that in the end, and sooner than not, that any child who's in the foster care system in America anywhere would wish they were in Kentucky because we do it better than anywhere else. That's not the case now. It will be. I'm determined that it will be. We have all the right partners. And if we get people pulling together and and not apart from one another, And one of the things that I did just recently is I brought many of these organizations that I meant to a single meeting. And we sat around and we said, listen, who in this room can't work with someone else in this room? Who in this room doesn't have the ability to work with someone else? And there's a few people who may or may not want to play in the sandbox, but the vast majority do. They want to. So thank you. And again, it's, 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 I wish it were as easy. Coming from the private sector, you don't realize how frustrating government is. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. Is there time for one more quick question or no? No? Okay. Awesome. Thank you for keeping me on time here. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. I'd like to invite the panelists to please join me now on the stage. We're so delighted um, to also have Three experts who've devoted their entire lives to working for vulnerable children, both in the United States and around the world, to join us today. We have uh, Jed Medifind, the president of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. The alliance, known as CAFO, unites 190 respected organizations and over 650 churches 
to join in initiatives to inspire and equip Christians to live out effectively the Bible's call to care for orphans and vulnerable children. They join in initiatives to grow adoption, foster care, and global orphan care rooted in the local church. These include the CAFO Summit, the Orphan Sunday Campaign, the National Foster Care Initiative, and the National Church Ministry Initiative. Jed also worked in the White House as a special assistant to President George W. Bush, leading the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. In that post, he oversaw reform efforts across the government to make community and faith-based groups central partners in the federal government's efforts to aid the needy from prisoner reentry to global AIDS. He also held a wide range of posts in the California State Legislature, and he has recently written a book called Becoming Home, which offers an exploration of how families and communities can embrace vulnerable children with wisdom and love through adoption, foster care, mentoring, and more. After Jed speaks, we will have Becky Wyhand, the Executive Director of the the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. CCAI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that was founded in 2001 by advocates of children in the United States and around the world who are in need of families. These advocates seek to match the commitment of members of Congress with families and children. CCAI provides them with information and resources that they need to make the dream of a family a reality for every child. Becky was formerly the director of policy at CCAI, and there she led congressional delegations to Los Angeles, Columbus, Europe, Africa, and Asia. She was named executive director in 2014 and has a JD from Regent Law and is an attorney in Virginia. And then we'll hear from Jimbo Savely, who is the president of Small World Adoption, a Christian nonprofit agency founded in 1985 in Nashville, Tennessee, for the purpose of preserving and enhancing the lives of children in foster care and around the world. As a response to James 127, through adoption, they give orphan children the greatest gift, a family, making them orphans no more. Small World rescues orphans and institutions on four continents, and they place them for adoption with Christian families. Jimbo is a pastor as well with Southern Baptist Churches. He has served as both a children's pastor and a youth pastor. He's also served on the Rising Adoption Leaders Council for the National Council for Adoption and currently serves as chairman of the board for the National Christian Adoption Fellowship. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. Several years ago in the county where I lived, a boy was removed from his family by Child Protective Services. And uh, he was four years old, but he could hardly walk like like a toddler, just would, would barely stumble along. And not only was he unable to speak, but actually when adults would, would talk with him, it, it seemed that he could not even understand language at all. And so the experts initially concluded that he had a very severe form of autism. Um, but as they investigated his case more thoroughly, what they began to discover is that the reason Aiden was the way he was 
was because he had been left in a room completely alone almost every day of his entire life. And it was that total absence of touch and love and nurture that had stunted his development in virtually every area. And the government removed him from that home, and I think we can all really affirm the government played a vital role there. It essentially saved him from death. What what actually, in the United States, more children die from severe neglect than from abuse, which is an interesting reality. And and so government played a vital role in, in preventing that death and enabling Aiden to thrive. But it leaves us with the question, what are the things that enable a child like Aiden not just to survive, but to truly thrive, right? And, and I think we all know intuitively that what children most need is love and nurture and belonging. And those are things that government alone can never provide. And so we're left with a dilemma, at, particularly in public policy discussions. What do we do in order to meet those far deeper needs than government by itself can touch? Well, the great news for Aiden is that a very loving family brought him in to their family through foster care. And his siblings began to play with him and and provide some of that touch and that interaction that he so badly needed. His mother worked with him day after day, physically helping his body develop, but also with language. She she would make flashcards go through word after word. She would help his lips to form the words, actually. And little by little, he began to develop. And the summer before last, actually, Aiden and his family were over at our home. And I, I knew his story, and so I was amazed as I looked out the window of the backyard and saw him not just kind of stumbling across the backyard, but he was running and leaping and sword fighting with my kids. It was beautiful. And, and then he came through the house as I was, I was starting to dish up dessert, and I didn't know if he would respond, but I said, Aiden, would you like some ice cream? And he just looked up at me and he said, yes, please. And, you know, I don't think there is anything more beautiful on earth than seeing a life that has been hurt and wounded beginning to to blossom and flourish in the love of a caring home. (coughs) And Aiden's family, this is an important part about them, they would say that the reason that they chose to welcome him in is because of their faith. As they would describe it, they would say, you know, this is actually how God first loved us. That when when we were kind of in great need and alone, that he welcomed us into his family. And so we see what we're doing just as a small reflection of the way that we have first been loved. And I think it, it bears saying that the things we've been talking about, the love, the nurture, the belonging... These are things that are not only critical to helping a young child to thrive, but they're, they're, they're needed for, for every one of us, right? And if we're talking about any complex social issue, these are the things that are most critical, whether we're talking about addiction or returning prisoners or homelessness or, or, or global complex matters. I mean, certainly there are a physical element to it, and sometimes government can provide those things. But the deeper things that are needed... Those are things that can't come from government, the love and nurture and belonging. And so here is the primary thesis that that I'm arguing today. It is this, that if we are serious about addressing the world's great needs, 
then we absolutely need faith-based organizations and faith-motivated individuals to be a part of that. This is completely apart from any of our opinions about faith or religion, whether we're religious or not, or what religion we happen to be. But just if we look at the issues and we say we want to address those, then those who are motivated by their faith to serve us are our invaluable allies. And I'd like to present some empirical data that, that I believe just shore up that case with hard numbers. And to help make it a little more uh, something that would stick in your head, I brought three objects, okay, to help you um, kind of embody these things. So first of all, this is a checkbook, all right? And what I would first say is that faith motivates uncommon generosity. Uh, research by Arthur Brooks actually finds that individuals who attend faith faith services each week donate three times the percentage of their income given by individuals who do not attend church. And this is not only to religious organizations. Actually, they they give more to religious organizations, but they even give more to non-religious organizations. And we've seen this very vividly in the realm of adoption and orphan care. Um, if If you look at giving by all Americans to all charitable causes since 2010, it has risen by about 30% since 2010. But as measured by uh, what's an organization called ECFA, they they look at uh, the data of of giving to Christian organizations, and they actually have have found that giving over that same time period, where all giving rose 30%, that giving to Christian adoption causes has risen by 81%, and giving to Christian orphan care has risen by 90%. That's three times as fast. And so faith motivates uncommon generosity. And it's not only in the financial side, actually. That same data also shows that faith-motivated individuals volunteer more hours, they give blood to blood drives more frequently, and and a number of other things. So that's number one, uncommon generosity. Secondly, we've got a washcloth or a rag here. Faith motivates sacrificial service. That could be just scrubbing the floor. It could be wiping a bloody nose of a child. It could be washing someone's feet. But if you look at the data you see that faith-motivated individuals are very active in sacrificial service. You see, actually, the World um, Health Organization estimates that about 40% of all health care in sub-Saharan Africa is provided by faith-based organizations. And then you bring this back to the conversation that we're having that actually research by Barna showed that faith-based individuals adopt at rates twice that of the general population. Okay, we see the same actually not only just in adoption generally, but individuals practicing Christians in this particular study were more likely to adopt children with special needs, older children, sibling groups, and other hard-to-place populations. We see similar things in the foster realm. Practicing Christians were three times as likely as the general population to seriously consider foster care. And so we see that these are people we need on our team if we're talking about wading into very difficult situations. Finally, one more little object here. What does this represent? Represents any, any young parents here? Anyone with a baby in the room? Okay, there we go. You know what this might be? It's butt cream, right? It's really important. You don't want that diaper rash, right? Well, what, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you a little story. So my, my, my wife and I we were contacted by our foster agency, and they said, hey, we know you weren't planning on this, but we've got a newborn um, that needs a home today. Any any chance you'd be willing to take them? And we we weren't really ready for this, but we you know we we had been approved for foster care, so we said yes. And so that very afternoon, this little boy who was actually several weeks still before his due date came to our home, and um, 
And we had one challenge, several, but one was that our youngest child at that time had just turned five. So we had gotten rid of all baby stuff. There was not a baby thing to be seen in our house. And so we didn't have any of the things that we needed to care for this precious little guy. Well, folks at our church heard about this. I mean, we hadn't even really reached out. So one of one of a friend learned about this, shared this, and people began showing up at our house with bags of clothes, little infant preemie clothes, and diapers, and meals. We had two different dinners that night, and dinners over many, many of the, the weeks and months that followed, actually. Uh, we had a, a, a diaper disposal thing that didn't let any stink out. It was amazing. And butt cream, very important. Someone brought that, too. All right? Faith motivates supportive community. And so, you know, to, to wrap this up, all of this doesn't say that faith-based organizations filled with faith-motivated individuals have all the answers, not by any stretch. But what it does tell us is that if we are serious about addressing serious and difficult and complex and painful needs in our community, in our world, then faith-motivated individuals are our indispensable allies. We need them. We need every willing partner. And we especially need allies who bring uncommon generosity and sacrificial service and supportive community. Those are the kind of things that can make all the difference for a child like Aiden. And they're the things that make a difference for all of us. Thank you very much, Jed. Please go ahead, Becky. Good morning. As Emily said, I am Becky Wyhand, Executive Director at the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. We are a nonprofit created by members of Congress to um, work in a bipartisan, collaborative fashion to make sure that public policy is making sure that children are in families. Um, we don't lobby or take positions, and I want to emphasize that we don't actually endorse legislation. Uh, what we do is work to bring everyone to the table, and I loved what Governor Bevin said about bringing people into the room and saying, how can we all work together? That's really the spirit in which CCI was created, and that's the spirit in which we try to operate on a daily basis here on Capitol Hill. Um, we are not a faith-based organization. Um, we are focused on engaging government leaders in policy efforts. However, we recognize the important role that individuals and organizations in faith communities um, play in being a part of the solution for the adoption and foster care challenges that we face in this nation and around the world. Um, so I loved, Emily, what you said about force multipliers. We really do believe that people of faith and um, organizations that are faith-based can really be that force multiplier. Um, Emily asked me just to share some stories about people that CCAI has engaged with who are people of faith who are making an impact in foster care and adoption. And so I'm going to share with you about some of our angels in adoption, some of our foster youth interns, and um, just a few of their stories. So I have a really easy job this morning. First, I wanted to share with you um, a gentleman that I've had the privilege of spending quite a bit of time with, uh, the president of our board of directors, Jack Gerard. So if you look in the top right corner in this photo, um, he is up there with his wife, Claudette, next to him. And the people in this picture are one of our foster youth internship classes at uh, the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. What the foster youth interns do is they come to Capitol Hill every summer from across the nation, and they um, use their life experience, having spent significant years in foster care, um, to bring the perspective of foster youth and alumni to Capitol Hill. They work in committees of jurisdiction. They work um, in uh, personal offices of members of Congress, 
and they also have the opportunity to research and write federal policy and make recommendations to Congress and the White House on how to improve foster care policy for all their brothers and sisters in care across the nation currently. And so this is a picture of Jack hosting the foster youth interns at his lake home for a retreat weekend. And um, the exciting part of that weekend is that he usually takes everyone out on the boat pretty much all day and tries to knock them off of tubes. Um, and many of the young people in their 20s have, have never actually had that opportunity to be on, a, be on a lake, be on a boat, or go tubing. So it's a really fun weekend for them. Um, Jack is a member of the Mormon faith. And um, he is very compelled by his faith, as he and his wife are, um, to, to give back um, to people and particularly to invest in children who need families. They have actually adopted from Guatemala. But interestingly, they had hoped to adopt in the state of Maryland first and were told that they were not in the best position to do so when they had a government assessment done. So they adopted internationally. Um, and Jack is just, he spends... It, Many people may know him. He is a lobbyist here in town um, in the oil and gas um, industry. And I am always shocked at the amount of time and energy that he pours into um, the work that we're doing, the advocacy that we're doing, how he leverages his relationships, um, his influence, his platforms to make sure that people are hearing about children who need families and um, doing what he can with his congressional relationships to try and make sure that this is something that's on the radar of our um, national leaders. So um, he's actually going to be leaving Washington soon, and he will be um, uh, taking a significant leadership position in his church um, in the state of Utah. And so I wanted to um, share that story as an example of someone who I've um, spent a lot of time with whose faith motivates them in this field. These are some of our angels in adoption, Christopher and Alicia Johnson. I wanted to share a little bit of their story with you. They are biological parents to three daughters and the adoptive parents of five other children from foster care. By 2013, they had fostered close to 20 children. Their first adoption was a two-year-old who had cystic fibrosis and requires a daily regimen of medication and treatment to keep him healthy. Next, they adopted a 17-year-old boy, Joey, right before he would have aged out of the foster care system. He has diabetes, um, and they were able to help him with treatment. And they, he recently graduated from high school and is now attending um, a state college. They have also adopted um, Anna, who's at the age of seven weeks old, they adopted her. And then recently, they adopted Chris and Alicia, I'm sorry, they adopted siblings Ethan and Emma, who had spent several years in foster care, often living separately, and six of those years were in group homes. So um, Chris and Alicia felt very strongly that they are called to foster, adopt, and provide a safe haven for abused and neglected children. Chris is the senior pastor of Liberty Baptist Church in Claremont, Florida, and he's also serving as the vice president of Lake Sumter Foster and Adoptive Families Association and the Central Florida Regional, he's the Central Florida Regional Vice President for the Florida State Foster Parent Association. They also, as a family partner with city officials and other members of their community, to encourage others to consider fostering and adoption. And so a member of Congress in 2013 recognized them as angels in adoption. Marcy Borland, she is from Georgia, and she's the area managing director for Faith Bridge Foster Care. 
It's a Christian organization that partners with churches to coordinate volunteers and contracts with the government to place children in stable and supportive foster homes. FaithBridge empowers local churches to care for vulnerable children by creating communities that surround and support foster families. Marcy's responsibilities include raising awareness for the larger number of children who need homes, developing church relationships, managing child welfare best practices, and managing foster family consults. Marcy has a Master's of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary, and she and her husband, Andrew, are both licensed foster parents and the adoptive parents of two-year-old Nathaniel, as well as foster parents to a little girl right now. And Marcy believes that she has a mission, and um, it is to continue to impact lives personally and professionally through compassion. Chad and Marsha Hardeberger are from Louisiana, and they have served as foster adoptive parents through the Louisiana Department of Children and Family Services for 13 years. They have cared for 14 children in foster care and have adopted six children. According to Marsha, some children stay with them only for 24 hours, while six amazing, beautiful children are now a part of our forever family. However, each and every child that has lived with us has truly been a gift from God. In addition to opening their hearts and homes, the Harderbergers have also established an adoption ministry, ministry through their church, Emmanuel Baptist. The ministry, Fashion for a Home, works with the Louisiana Department of Children and Family Services to provide foster and adoptive parents orientations, to recruit foster and adoptive homes, provide special events for foster children, provide dignity bags full of supplies for children entering foster care, and sponsors an adoption support group to assist families through the adoption journey. And then Marianne Kadri is from North Dakota. She is an 87-year-old. She was born and raised on a small farm in central North Dakota by parents who were immigrants from Syria. She and her husband, Orville, had four children, eight grandchildren, and eight great-grandchildren. And she worked for 42 years for the public school system locally. She and her husband started doing foster care with Lutheran Social Services in 1984, and when her husband passed away in 2006, she continued as a foster care parent. In over 30 years, she has fostered more than 300 children, and she says her love for her children for children is keeping her young. She currently has three teenage girls living with her, and Marion is a community leader in the Baha'i faith. The last individual I wanted to share with you is Mendel Thompson. Uh, Mendel Thompson has served as the president and CEO of America's Christian Credit Union since 1986. Under Thompson's vision and leadership, the credit union launched a low-cost adoption loan program in 2009 to benefit families that are seeking to adopt. The efforts have made a profound difference in the lives of many adopted children. Over 1,100 adoptions in the United States and other countries have taken place through this visionary role of the credit union. Mendel strongly supports the belief that every child deserves a forever family and has taken a very active role in crafting an affordable solution for America's adoptive families. He is very passionate and has a heart for the miracle of adoption and continues to fervently drive this cause. And he and his employees love celebrating each adoption that takes place through their loans. Lastly, I wanted to share a picture of one of our Foster Youth Internship classes. Um, one of the things I've learned over the years as I've heard the stories of the young people that come through this program is that a great many of them 
um, relied on their faith to, to sustain them when they went through very challenging times um, in the foster care system and when they were not in the, in the system. And um, so this class is no exception to that rule. Um, one thing that happened this week, actually, we had um, we, ha- we currently have the class of interns here on Capitol Hill, and um, the cohort was going through sort of a challenging situation. And this is one of the emails that I received from one of the foster youth interns, and I thought I would share it because it felt very relevant to um, today's topic. My faith has played a larger role in my personal healing process. And when life gets tough, I refer back to scripture to find peace. So many times when referencing the life and legacy of Christ, I'm reminded that life is hard, and yet when we trust the process, it makes it all worth it. So that was what I wanted to share with you, just some stories of the people that we work with at CCAI, how faith um, plays a significant role in their lives as motivators, how we as an organization and the larger, I think, public policy um, efforts that go on in this nation are the beneficiaries of people of faith and organizations of faith. I did want to mention, um, just very briefly, um, the governor mentioned the Casey Foundation. I believe he was probably referencing the Annie E. Casey Foundation, but he could have been referencing some of the other Casey cousins. Um, But the Annie E. Casey Foundation has been really intentionally researching and um, looking into developing resources for faith foster families. And um, I think it's great that that's something that they're particularly focused on. They know, as Jed said, the statistics of the number of people who are motivated to foster and adopt because of their faith. And so they're working to um, be a liaison, be a bridge, work um, to engage uh, governments and conversations with the faith community. And then I was also glad to hear that um, he focused and mentioned um, on the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program, also a fabulous program um, in many states in this nation. Um, I did just want to also say that I agree very much with Governor Bevan that your voice in this room does matter. Um, But I also want to encourage you to think about what platforms that you each have as individuals or through your networks where you could invite a young person who has experienced foster care or a foster or adoptive parent to come and share their story and perhaps invite some people to be a part of the solution as well. Thank you, Becky, and thank you for your work and um, helping so many people be part of the solution. Jimbo? Well... (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here with each of you, and really I would like to just share with you a little bit of my story and um, how faith has drawn me to where I am at right now. And That is, first of all, um, honestly, it began uh, with me as a child. I uh, always had a love for being with children, working with kids, being around kids, so I knew that there was a draw to children for some reason, but I also had a, a an interest in medicine. So... Uh, I just looked at it, and I thought, which one makes more money? Um, it wasn't working with children. It was going to be medicine. <laughs> uh, and so I decided to pursue being a doctor. But I thought, you know what, let's be a pediatrician. Now I can get a little bit of both worlds there. And as I pursued that, I kind of ran into an obstacle my freshman year of college. And that obstacle was called chemistry. <laughs> I had to reevaluate was I going the right way? And the reason and the way that I reevaluated that is by turning to my God and Savior. And as I turned to him and I asked him, God, am I doing the right thing here? He reaffirmed to me that, yeah, you, I have implanted this love for children in you. That That's real. You just went the wrong way about how I want you to work with kids. 
And so he steered me through my faith, through my talks and my prayers and my meditation with him. As I talked with him, he steered me into the field of adoption and orphan care. And that's where I'm at today. And so since 1991, I have been with Small World Ministries doing adoptions, orphan care, working with foster children um, all over the world, in the United States and uh, approximately 20 different countries that I've worked in. And so in addition to that, um, I'm also chairman of the board of uh, the National Christian Adoption Fellowship, which is a number of us who have gathered together as an organization to support one another um, in order to uh, be able to help hold each other accountable, to come up with ideas and work together as Christian organizations uh, to carry the plight of the orphan. I think it's important for us to look at why faith drives care of orphans, foster care, institutionalized, whatever it may be. And as we evaluate what God's Word says... As you look at the different things there as a Christian faith, when you look at the different things that um, he says in his word, one of the driving forces is is that he says that we are to be his hands and his feet. He also says that faith in Romans, in the book of Romans, he says that faith is hearing, hearing God's word. So when we hear God's word, and we are then driven to be his hands and his feet, we can't help but follow what he also says in James 1.27. Which James 1.27 says that we are to care for orphans and widows in their distress. Well, as I evaluated it and as um, those around me evaluated it, my mother and father who founded our ministry at Small World, um, as we looked at that and we said how best... Do we care for an orphan? Which he says is pure and undefiled religion, by the way. How best do we do that? We found the best way to do that is to make them sons and daughters. Make them sons and daughters through adoption. And so we pursued that. And that's our driving force now. We had a family uh, years ago that came to us, um, and they shared their story with us that, uh, and I'll share with you, they have a very common last name, so I don't mind. They're the Wilsons. So the Wilsons uh, came to us and just shared with us that they had been pursuing um, in vitro fertilization and other methods and so forth to try and have a child biologically and had failed at all attempts, had shared with us that their dream had always been to have a large family. But because of these failed attempts and because they constantly had tried and, and, and were not being successful with it, they too came to the same conclusion that I did, that they needed to reevaluate what God's plan was for their life. And so they turned to their faith. And when they turned to their faith, they were very clearly led to adopt. And so they adopted their first child with us, a little boy, which was a tremendous event for them. And uh, and I, I was personally involved in that and remember those days and how happy they were with it. And they pursued a second child, and they adopted that second child. And I'll never forget that as they pursued that second one, uh, some comments that they made to us, they uh, particularly her, she had said to me, she said, you know, I always dreamed of having a big family, four or five kids, and uh, that was big to me, and that's what I wanted. And I just felt like that was the way that it was going to be. I was going to be the mother of this family of four or five kids. But... 
this is going to be it for us. Um, we, we've, we've reached our limit here financially. We've reached our limit here emotionally. We've just reached our limit here. This is, this is what we can do right now. Um, we, we're, we're done. So as she pursued that and they finished that adoption, it was only a few weeks after they um, had completed that second adoption of a little girl. <laughs> they came to our office and literally looked at me and uh, the rest of us on staff there and just simply said, I came home with some medical issues, discovering that there were a few things I didn't know what was going on. And as I went to the doctor and tried to pursue what was happening here, I discovered I'm pregnant with twins. <laughs> it was only after they pursued their faith and what faith drove them to do that God opened her womb. It was only after that. And so faith is what drove them to save these two children from being orphaned, to make them a son and a daughter. Faith drove that. God reaffirmed with me that I had made the, the right choice in the end, um, honestly because of a story of a young man um, who I had been involved with that uh, unfortunately did not uh, end as I thought it was going to end. And that was a little boy that I had uh, been in a home playing with him. I had spent hours with him amongst other children there. A little boy, and this was in another country, by the way, and the little boy, as I was leaving, stood right on my left side, and I'll never forget his face, as he hugged my leg and looked up at me and was saying in another language something that just sounded like gibberish to me. And as I turned to our translator, I asked our translator, I said, what is, what is he saying? And the translator didn't want to translate it for me. And then eventually, as I forced that translator to do it, um, the translator said, uh, I warned you. And I said, nope taken. She, he then told me, he's looking at you and saying, Papa, Papa, take me home. Papa, Papa, take me home. These children know that they're missing something. They know that they're missing a family. It only took a couple of hours of me sitting down on the floor playing with him for him to realize, that's what I want. I want that. That's what I need. And the reason I was there playing with him was because of my faith. Because God has directed me through my faith in him to minister to orphans and widows in their distress. That's how faith drives it. And for me, I look at it and I think that I'm being the hands and feet of Christ, fulfilling some of the things he says in his word, specifically in Deuteronomy 10, 18. He says, I will execute justice for the fatherless. Justice for the fatherless. My faith is what helps him to execute that justice. It's what drives it. And that's why I continue to do it today. Thank you very much, Jimbo, for your work and for sharing, sharing um, what motivates you and so many other people of faith to care for the orphan and the widow. Uh, before we turn to the audience for questions, and we will, I would just like to ask uh, if any of you would like to comment 
on what was discussed earlier, which is the current conflicts between some states um, with faith-based organizations that provide uh, services in the child welfare space. Um, in addition to those three states and two cities that I mentioned, which have shut down uh, faith-based agencies, there have been nine states that have actually passed laws to protect faith-based agencies. And there have been lawsuits against two of those states, one filed by the ACLU, one filed by Lambda Legal, to overturn those protections. So I'd like to invite any of you to comment on what you think should um, happen in these conflicts. Well, I'll, I'll start. Just, you know, I, I think we can establish two things that, that, that seem to me fairly self-evident. One is that we need faith-based organizations as partners in this work. And, you know, as, as I was talking about, we need that, that uncommon generosity. We need sacrificial service. We need the support of communities. And right now, we are failing the kids in the foster system. In so many states, there are not enough homes to provide the love and nurture that these kids need. And so we, we, we desperately need faith-based allies in this. So that's exhibit one. And I think everyone could, could for the most part agree to that. The second thing is just that, you know, it seems very reasonable to say that if, if we desire individuals who are motivated by their faith to serve, then we should allow them to serve in ways that are consistent with that faith. And that we shouldn't say, you know, we need the fruit of your faith, but we want to cut off its roots. That's not fair. That's not consistent with the American tradition. And so I think those two things together enable us to argue for a real pluralism in the public square, that we need diversity. We need every willing partner. And that would include organizations motivated by their faith to serve from a variety of faiths as well as organizations uh, that would claim no faith at all. We need every willing partner so that we can do right by children in foster care, kids that need adoptive families, families that need support in in the struggle and brokenness and trying to get off drugs and all of those things. And so to, to me, it just it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game. We can um, still have systems that honor and uh, the, the dignity of every individual in the state um, while at the same time honoring the sincere convictions of religious organizations. I, I would also add that, you know, um, when you look at some of the hard statistics that are out there, um, for instance, one of the organizations that um, I have good friends with called Save Adoptions has done a study um, in which they studied the families that are actually following through and doing adoptions and working with these kids, and they looked at the faith of those people and whether or not they have any uh, faith. And as they examined that, they examined all agent, adoption agencies, families that are uh, Hague accredited here in the United States. And so they looked at all those families. And here's what they found. Families identified as active Christians made up 87% of all adoptive families. 87%. And so that alone to me says that we need to be able to, as a government, as a country, to honor these faith-based agencies to do this work because that's the majority of who's responding to take care of those kids. And so the red tape is what's stopping so many of them from happening. It's Governor, you know, pointed out we could easily take care of those 2,400 kids in Kentucky. There are more than enough families uh, willing to do that. Um, 
But I will tell you that uh, over the time that I've done this since 1991, um, the overwhelming thing that stops family is how hard it's going to be. How hard it is. There's so much red tape and so much I've got to go through. And there's, I, I just, I don't think I've got, I don't, I don't think I want to go through that. There are some families who comment that to us. Um, the red tape, uh, in my opinion, is what stops it. My only comments, Emily, are that we need more families. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a, a estimate that says that 70% of children who are adopted out of foster care are adopted by their foster families or their kinship caregivers. So we need a um, steady stream of foster families and caregivers stepping up um, in order to have that permanency that we're looking for in many of their lives. And I'm also um, really grateful, as I mentioned, for um, organizations that are not faith-based, like Annie EKC, taking the lead on trying to bring um, bring the world together, the government sector um, and the faith-based organizations, so that um, barriers in communication um, can be broken down and more understanding and um I guess better translation of some of the um, perspectives can take place. Thank you. It seems like we need an all-hands-on-deck approach, not a zero-sum game approach. Well, now we have some time for questions from the audience. If you have a question, please raise your hand, and the microphone will come to you. A gentleman in the back in the blue shirt. Yes, it's uh, Josh Shepard with the stream. Um, might be a question for Jed, but perhaps all the panelists. Um, some voices in the media, they've disparaged adoption by Christian families as merely a ploy for proselytism. Um, as you educate potential adoptive families, how do you navigate those issues? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, one thing I've shared with, you know, I, I enjoy interacting with some of the critical writers and, and things. And include, there's, there's a, a lady named Catherine Joyce who wrote a very critical book of faith-based uh, adoption and foster care, and we've become good friends. And she she asked me that very question. I said, I said, Catherine, if people just want to get people to believe a certain thing, you know, to to kind of pray the sinner's prayer, as as some people would say, um, you know, there are much easier ways than to welcome this child into your family permanently, than to give them your last name, than to write them into your will, to tie your very destiny to theirs. You know, you can go down and pass out tracts. Um, there, there are a lot of other ways to do this. You know, as, as an adoptive father and as a friend to many, many other adoptive families, adoption is beautiful, but it can be really hard. And, you know, many of these children have experienced the world at its most broken. They know great hurt. And if you open your, your home to them as an adoptive parent, and frankly, as foster parents too, you are welcoming that hurt into your life, into your heart. And so I would just say that, um, you know, there, there, there are much, much easier ways to proselytize than adoption and foster care, and I, and I don't think um, that that would would be the. Uh, well, I'll just end there. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, the gentleman in the back with the brown jacket. Hi, I'm Michael Robinson. Um, came up from Richmond, Virginia. Not a part of any organization, but just interested in what's going on. And my question is. Seeing the pictures I've seen as an African-American who advocates for adoption by whoever, what are the challenges you faced within other organizations or individuals as it relates to Caucasian families adopting black children if you have faced those? And, and if so, 
uh, how do you how do you respond to that with the love and grace that I know we need to, but I know myself I would I'd be very frustrated if I was trying to provide a loving home and then there are organizations that don't want that to happen because you're not the same color as those you're adopting. Thank you. I can say that um, as an agency um, that does adoptions, as a ministry that works in that, one of the things that we are doing in response to that is we have brought in a number of training programs um, and encouragement and support groups for these families in order to, and, and we'd love to share that with um, people who challenge a person of another race adopting a child of, uh, of a race that's not their own. And so in doing that, we take them through these training programs. We are encouraging them to be active with people of the race of that child, and we are constantly providing ways for our own families to get together and have time with other families that are in the same situation for them, in addition to providing a number of counseling programs and training programs for them, getting them ready for that. Um, and anybody who qualifies to be a mother and a father to a child, we're going to pursue using them to partner with us in being a mother and father to a child and train them for what they feel called to do. And if they and if that training is not working, if we then determine this is not the right path, you've misinterpreted what you're called to do, we're very open and honest with them about that. We're very open with them to say, we believe that you should pursue a different path here. Maybe you should consider this age child, or maybe you should consider not adopting a child of that race because of the community you live in, so forth. We, we will pursue those things. So that's what we're doing in response to that. Thank you. We have time for one last question about the lady in the white shirt. Hi, thank you guys so much for your time. I'm Rachel Becker. I'm with the Children's Defense Fund. Um, I was wondering, as a child who spent time in the child welfare system and who has um, met a lot of foster care kids with my position this summer, I'm curious what the role faith-based organizations can play in reunification and keeping children with their families, especially with the passage of Family First in February. Um, is there a role? Um, I know a lot of children, especially older children, that is what they want. So I'm just kind of curious. Thank you. Okay, I want to just comment briefly. Last year we did a congressional briefing, Rachel, on um, faith-based organizations and recruitment of families. And one of the things that was interesting um, was that First of all, um, some of the organizations that are doing recruitment really well, and there are actually some that are in the room here doing it locally here in D.C., um, have learned that over time it's actually best not to recruit specifically for adoptive parents because a lot of times what that does is it frames expectations um, towards that permanency when really what a child in crisis needs is a family that's going to wrap around them for a short window of time and is open to safely reunifying them or stepping forward to be that permanent solution as well. And so a focus more on recruiting foster families and really educating them that there are two paths and actually that the goal of foster care ideally is to focus on reunification is something that they have emphasized to us has been really helpful in their recruitment efforts. But I'm actually going to let the expert on these issues who is doing a lot of that work um, jump in as well. Mm -hmm. so. 
That's good. Thanks, Ed. And um, I think it's a great, great question, Rachel. I'd, I'd love to dig even deeper than we can. Maybe we can talk afterwards. But, you know, I think one of – there are a lot of great faith-based organizations really focused on that area. There's an organization called Safe Families that you may have heard of, you know, that really is focused entirely on – it's pre-foster care. It's, you know, it's helping a family that's in crisis, if they need temporary care for that child to, to be able to – uh, go through rehab, or maybe they have time, jail time they have to serve things, but then to receive that child back without being entangled in the system, that's, that's ideal if possible, of course, or, or you know, that the, the child would never have to be out of home at all, if, if that's at all possible. Um, one thing I would note, you know, is, and I'm sure you, you see this a lot too, is that there tends to be camps on this as in so many issues, right? And there's those who are like passionate for unification, and there's are passionate for finding new homes through foster care adoption. And, and I just really feel like this is one of those issues where we can grip both of those 100%, you know, and say, we are passionate to keep kids in families, if at all possible. If there's any way to hold that family together, support them, to mentor, to help with rehab, whatever it is, to keep them together. And we are also just as passionate, if a child cannot be safely in their home, that we will care for them for a short time, hopefully, but forever if we need to. And, and those things don't have to be warring camps. They can be held together. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And if you would like to ask more questions of the speakers, um, you can find them outside of the auditorium after afterwards. We also have several heritage publications outside on adoption and foster care, so we encourage you to pick those up. Please join me in giving a hand to all the speakers. Thank you. <laughs>